Let's jump into um, John chapter 3. All right, so the purpose of the Gospel of John is twofold, to convince the skeptic and encourage us as disciples to experience greater life and intimacy and love in our relationship with God. And that's John twenty thirty one. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So I kind of start with that every week because that's the, the theme of the book. Now, the main thing in, in chapter 2 was the link between joy and judgment. So joy, the, the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine, and then judgment where he overturned the money changes tables, drove all the cattle and sheep out, and told the people telling doves to take those out of there. And we looked at the fact that God is angry with anything or anyone that hinders, distracts, prevents, or otherwise discourages a person from experiencing a love relationship with himself. So anything that separates us from God, God is very displeased about. By our selfishness and sinfulness, we can actually prevent people from coming to the Lord. We can drive them away or discourage them just like the greedy and self-righteous religious leaders did in Jesus' day. We can turn them off God, and church, some churches do that, and sometimes I've done that too. When I haven't been walking in the Spirit and I've been selfish and I've turned someone off the Lord, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian <laughs> type thing. So, yeah, so we can turn them off God in the Bible because they may see us as hypocrites and they see a disconnect between what we say and what we do, who we are and who we say we are. Also, there may be idols in our own life, addictions, love of money, family, ambitions, career, etc., that may have taken first place in our life. That can take first our first love away. That becomes our first love, our first priority. And God, because he loves us and he wants to restore our joy, that's why God judges us, he disciplines us, he disciplines and scourges, drives out those things in our lives that divide or separate us from him. Now, that process hurts, the process of getting rid of those things in our lives. But the result is the restored love, greater joy, and a peace that passes understanding. And I reckon we need to keep in mind the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which says, what do you seek? Are you seeking your family? Are you seeking your career? Are you seeking to have pleasure or your sport whatever? So we need to ask ourselves, what am I seeking? What is the main focus or first priority in my life? If it's not God, then it's a joy stealer. And you can expect, if you're a Christian, for God to come knocking on your door and saying, hey, get that thing out of there. Even if it's, again, even if it's just something like family, which is a good thing, even if you put family before God, it will keep us out of that place of where God wants to bless us, the place of God's blessing, where we are walking in his will. So basically, we can settle for temporary blessings and miss the eternal ones. We forsake the banquet and settle for crumbs. So that's kind of how I thought about it. So we were created to be in relationship with the Father. That's the only way we are complete. And uh, as Paul says, nothing else compares to knowing Christ. And I've got Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 from the Amplified on the screen here. It says, Yes, furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth, and supreme advantage 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and clearly. For his sake I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish, refuse or dregs, in order that I may win or gain Christ, who is the Anointed One. So I just love the way the Amplifier just brings it out, you know. I'm going to read um, the same verse, but with a few more added, from the New Living, to get the context of that verse. It says, from the New Living, starting at verse 8 in Philippians 3, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience a resurrection from the dead. So that's like a summary of what we did last week, talking about joy and judgment and how God wants us to give up the things in our life which lead us away from him or separate us from him. So let's jump into chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 21. That's the first section of chapter 3, and we'll get through, hopefully get through this today. So if you've got that in your Bibles, it'll be good. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you'll help me as I um, speak today, Lord, that it be your words, Lord, that it be uh, your wisdom and your truth, and I pray that you will guide me as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That is a natural birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, 
the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So this is a fantastic passage of scripture. It's one of the, I believe, it's like Romans 8, one of the holiest places in the Bible. If you can say that one part is more holy than the other, it's probably an argument there. <laughs> but as far as the amount of truth it contains and the importance of that truth, it's, it's, it's really important. So what does it mean to be born again? And there's a lot of confusion over this term, and it, it's really important, oh, I think it's really important, that we come to understand what it means. So I'm going to study this first 12 verses or first 18 verses with the, just the view of understanding born again. Because there's actually a little bit to this, um, if you go back into the Jewishness of Nicodemus. And then we'll go through verse by verse and put the other bits in. I'm going to start by reading a note from um, my Bible, which is from Chuck Smith. And it just gives the whole setting to this, this passage. It says, Nicodemus came to Jesus to hear what God wanted to say to man. The Israelites hadn't heard from God in over 400 years, and now there was one who was clearly from God. So Nicodemus wanted to hear from God. Jesus threw Nicodemus a curveball by telling him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was telling him that without a new birth, a spiritual birth, it would be impossible to comprehend what God was saying. This is what Paul pointed out when he said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. In Romans 6.4, Paul referred to this new birth as newness of life. Peter described it as being begotten again. 1 Peter 1.3 There is a work of God's Spirit within a person's life whereby that person comes into a whole new dimension of life, the dimension of the Spirit. Man was created as a threefold being with a body, soul, and a spirit. We were designed to have our spirit rule over our body and soul. But because of our rebellion against God, we became spiritually dead and our flesh rules. What God wants to do is revive our spirit, bring it back to life, by its being filled with the Spirit of God. Then, 
Walking in the Spirit, we experience a new life. And being born again of the Spirit, we can now understand what God wants to say to us. This brings up the issue we all must face. Have I been born again? Have I been born of the Spirit? If you haven't, you can't enter the kingdom of God. If you haven't, you can't understand the things of God. All you need to do is ask, God, I want to be born again. I want to accept Jesus as my Saviour. I give my life to you. If you do that, you will be born again, entering a whole new life in the spiritual realm. So I just like the way Chuck sums that up. So now we've got the big picture. Now we can kind of dig in a bit more. So this conversation between Jesus, or Yeshua in the Hebrew, and Nicodemus, for me, is the most fascinating and interesting conversation ever recorded. Now, it happens early on in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus is baptized, and he began his ministry of proclaiming himself as a Messiah of Israel and performing many miracles, signs, and wonders to prove that he was a Messiah. Now, if you're in your Bibles, just jump back to chapter 2, verse 23. I'll just read verse 23 to 25. And this is the context of what's happening in chapter 3. This is what I believe Nicodemus saw and experienced before he went and talked to Jesus. So, John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So, basically, he did lots of miracles. Lots of people saw them. Many accepted his claim that he was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And most likely, this is um, conjecture, but it, it would make sense because Jesus was at the temple and Nicodemus was a religious leader. Um, Nicodemus was standing in the crowd and was watching and observing some of the, at least some of these miracles and listening to Jesus teach. So what he saw stirred him greatly and he just had to find out, who is this guy? Who, who, really, who is this Jesus? And so begins his quest for the truth his truth journey. Now, all believers have made this journey and where the Spirit convicts us and we start to seek the truth about Jesus. So many people are still on this journey, still searching for the truth, still waiting to be set free. So I'm just going to read this first part of the conversation again. So back in your Bibles, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, 
How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, what can we learn about Nicodemus from these verses? Well, he was a Pharisee, which means he was a rabbi or teacher. So, what did Nicodemus believe? Well, Pharisaic Judaism believed a couple of really important things. One of them is, all Israel has a share in the world to come. Basically, in our language, if you're a Jew, you're going to heaven. You're saved. Okay. All you need to be doing, all that needs to happen is you're born a Jew, and all Jews go to heaven. That's basically what that means. So all Israel has a share in the world to come. That's probably in the Talmud or something like that. And the next one says, Abraham sits at the gates of Gehenna, that's another name for hell, to save any Israelite consigned there. So according to the Pharisees, and they believe this, to be born a Jew physically was enough to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. So if you're a Gentile, you had to convert to Judaism. This is what they believe. You had to convert to Judaism before you'd be qualified were accepted by God to be to enter the kingdom of God. But if you were a Jew, it didn't matter because you were born into the kingdom. Okay? It's like for us, you know, we have Christian parents and they have kids and saying, Oh, I'm okay because my parents are Christians. No, God doesn't have grandkids. And you probably realise that this is um, a false belief and Jesus is going to debunk this belief. This is what this thing is about. This whole conversation. Now, the other thing we can learn about Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews, and this means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So there's 70 people who run the high court of the Jewish nation. It's like the government. And that also tells us he must have been married, because to be in the Sanhedrin, you needed to be married. So the conversation starts with Jesus clearly stating to... Soon into the conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus answers with these words, How can a man be born when he is old? Now, Nicodemus, I'm going to show you in a minute, understands what being born again means. What is confusing to him is how it's possible when a man or a person has reached the age of a senior citizen. And he's not just talking about going back into his mother's womb. There's, there's more to it. So to understand this, we need to go back into the traditions of the, the Pharisees, the Pharisee Judaism. And there were six different ways of being born again. Now, what's born, born again? Basically, it's a change of identity. All right. So think of being born again as a change of identity. And there's six ways that you can change your identity This is what the Pharisees believed. So, the first two ways which Nicodemus did not qualify for are these two. So the first one is when Gentiles converted to Judaism, they were said to be born again. So, what's the change in identity? Well, the person used to identify and live as a Gentile, but now they identify and live as a Jew. There's a change of identity. They're born again. 
A second way that Nicodemus did not qualify for was to be crowned king. For when a man was crowned king, he was said to be born again. And Nicodemus wasn't a king. He's not in the line of David. So those two ways, he couldn't be born again. He couldn't have that change of identity. But the four ways that Nicodemus was born again already was at 13, it's kind of like growing up and becoming a man. If I say this right, it's mitzvah, bar mitzvah. And basically at the age 13, they go from being a child to an adult. They say that at that age, he subjects himself to the Mosaic law and is responsible for his own sins. So there's an identity change there from being a child to being an adult, from being not responsible to being responsible for yourself. Or when I say not responsible, not responsible for yourself overall, but then you are when you turn 13. A second way that he was born again uh, was when a Jew married, he was said to be born again. And so your change of identity here is you are single and now you're married and your life is completely different. Another way a Jew could be born again was to be ordained as a rabbi. And since Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he had been ordained as a rabbi. So the change of identity here is from a student to a teacher. And the final way to be born again in Judaism was to become the head of of a rabbinical school. So in verse 10, Jesus said to Nicodemus that he was the teacher of Israel. The one who was the head of rabbinical school was always referred to as the teacher, the teacher of Israel. So here his new identity was the the teacher of Israel. He's the head of the the Pharisee school, if you want to call it that. All right. So the point is, Nicodemus has gone every way, four ways of being born again. And he can't see. Jesus is telling him to be born again, but Nicodemus is saying, well, he's thinking to himself, I've already become a man, I've already married, I've already become a rabbi, and I've already the teacher of Israel. How what what other born again process is there? You know, that's that's his response. Jesus has to correct Nicodemus's lack of understanding of spiritual things. He clearly told Nicodemus that except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, people might have different opinions on this, but I believe the to be born of water was a Jewish expression for physical birth. And that's what I believe the Pharisees believed about that, um, according to Fruchtenbaum. And the Jews, as I said before, said that if you're born physically as a Jew, Jewish heritage, then you're as as good as in the kingdom. Okay. Remember Jesus said um, when the Pharisees were talking to him and he he said, oh, you know, um, you can raise up stones to be children of Abraham, stuff like that. Yeah, so... If you read later on in John, Jesus addresses this issue again. And Jesus, to me, makes it clear that the born by water is a human or physical birth when he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So what is the change of identity that happens when a person is born again from above or spiritually? They go from being spiritually dead which is being separated from God, to spiritually alive. That's in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit within us. It's Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, Colossians 2, 13, Romans 8, 9. 
we go from being lost to found. And in Luke 15, you've got three stories there which illustrate that, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. In Colossians 1 verse 13, it tells us that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a new identity. In John 8.44, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.5, and Ephesians 1.5, we go from being a child of Satan to a child of God. Another way of saying that is we are redeemed from Satan's family as a slave and adopted into God's family as a son, which is also the next one, um, a slave to a son, so we become free. John 8.45 and Galatians 4.7. And the last one is we go from being guilty to innocent, so justified or made right with God or having good standing with God legally. And 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that's the change of identity, spiritually dead, spiritually alive, lost to found, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, instead of a child or part of Satan's family, become part of God's family, a slave to a son, guilty to innocent. Now, it's also important to understand the difference between being reformed and being regenerated. You know the differences between those two things? Being reformed is simply a change of behavior and not a change of heart. It's like a New Year's resolution. And you know what happens to them, don't you? <laughs> it lasts about a day. If it lasts beyond how, the time it took to say it. In contrast, being regenerated is a change of heart which leads to a change in, of behavior. And that's what the new covenant is all about. There are many references in to the New Covenant in the Old Testament, and Nicodemus would have been familiar with these things. And that's why Jesus, I believe, is, is saying, you're the teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things. He hasn't really understood what the New Covenant is as described in the Old Testament. I'll give you Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 to 20. It says, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, there's many passages, in, or three or four or five, in the Old Testament, um, which say basically the same thing. This is a new thing I will do. So Nicodemus should have been aware that God was going to do a new thing. Now, you know how the, 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 the Jews back then, they kind of said, oh, you know, this has already happened and they misinterpret things. So that's basically what they've done. All right. So how is a person born again or born from above? Well, there's two steps. You know, there's two steps, huh? Well, we can read it. In verse 13, 14, and 15. So back to John chapter 3. It says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here's the two steps that are required for the new birth, this spiritual birth. One step was taken by God, and the other step needs to be taken by man. All right. So 
the step that was taken by God is Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus came down from heaven. He was crucified on the cross, lifted up on the cross. And he died for the sins of the world. Sin was judged when Jesus died on the cross. But now, man has the obligation of believing the Messiah and what he did on the cross in order to have eternal life. So in other words, the only thing we need to do, God's done his part, he's offered this gift, and we need to receive it. That's our step. Okay, That's how someone is born again. They respond to what God has done. And those two steps are repeated in verses 16 to 18. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there's what God did and what we must do. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So they haven't taken that step of believing, therefore they are condemned. And I picture it like this. You, you, you're sinking in the water, you're drowning, and someone says, hey, from a boat above you, hey, reach, grab my hand, I'll pull you up. And you go, yeah, actually, I like the water better. That's kind of what it's like, you know. Someone's called, you know, made the SOS call. You take going out in your boat. I use boating because I'm out in the water a fair bit, and uh, <laughs> I can imagine drowning. If a boat came by me, I'd put my hand up and I'd be rescued. But the thing is, we're all before we came to know Christ, we're all um, slaves to sin. We're being destroyed by sin. It was killing us. It, and we were spiritually dead. We needed rescuing. But some people don't want to be rescued, and that's what this is talking about. It says they prefer to not be rescued. They prefer to stay in their sin and suffer the consequences of that. So once again, Jesus told Nicodemus how God loved the world and gave his only son to die for the world. But Nicodemus, as a man, must respond and believe. If he does believe, he'll be born again. He's a change of identity. He would have eternal life and he would qualify for entrance into the kingdom. So at at this point, Nicodemus has only been born of water, physical birth. You remember that phrase, um, born once, die twice, born twice, die once? This kind of comes from here. He needed to be born of the Spirit, and then he wouldn't go to the second death. So the same two basic steps hold true today. God has done his part. He let his beloved son die on the cross for sinful man. And the question is, have you done your part? Have you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, and made him Lord of your life? If not, you can pray and do so today. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, trusting that through his death on the cross and resurrection he paid your sin debt. You're fine, so to speak. So now you have right standing with God. You're innocent. So now I'm going to go back and look at the, go through the other details of the story because it's quite interesting. But I just wanted to focus in on the whole born-again thing, what it means, without being distracted by the other details. All right, so back to verse 2 in John. This man came to Jesus by night. So there's lots of reasons. I'm not going to go into them why he came at night, but I believe this is the right one. (laughs) 
Um, you can disagree with me. I give you permission. Um, it's, a, it's the Passover season. Everybody's busy. Jesus is teaching in the temple during the day. Nicodemus is, is the teacher of Israel. He's busy during the day. So when is the only time that Nicodemus and Jesus can talk? It's at night time. So that's my take on the night time. All right. And said to him, verse 2 and 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about the born again, but what is the kingdom of God? And this is important too. So the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God has past, present, and future application. So it's, it's, it's three different ways of looking at the kingdom of God at three different time periods. The past application of the kingdom of God is when Jesus walked on the earth as a man. He was filled with the Spirit. He was God himself. And as so, the king was on the earth. There's, there's the kingdom. Okay, And Luke chapter 10 verse 9 um, tells us that. I won't go into it now. So basically where the king is, there is a kingdom. And the miracles and the signs he, he performed or ministered on this planet were sneak previews of what the kingdom will be like in its future state. Now the present application or state of the kingdom of God is our understanding that it's in us. Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is in you. So the kingdom of God is not a physical thing right now, it's in us. So every Christian is a part of the kingdom of God. We have God living in us. Now the future application of the kingdom of God is when Jesus Christ returns and he rules and reigns on the earth and the whole earth will be the kingdom of God because Jesus is ruling and reigning. There will be a renovated earth, not a new earth yet, but a renovated earth and... If you want to read about that, it's Isaiah 11, 6 to 10. So, if you're not born again, you'll not see the kingdom presently, you'll not experience it internally, and you'll not be there eternally unless you're born again. Um, Guzik says, Jesus' reply to Nicodemus shattered the Jewish assumption that their racial identity, their old birth, the water birth, assured them a place in God's kingdom. Jesus made it plain that a man's first birth does not assure him of the kingdom. Only being born again gives this assurance. Uh, going to verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So this is interesting. He says how, not why. Most people today said, will say, Why should I be born again? What need do I have? What's it going to do for me? Nicodemus doesn't say that. He says how. He's looking for something. But he doesn't know what it is. And a lot of people are like that today. They know they're missing something, but they don't know what it is. And it's our job as Christians to tell them what it is. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Somehow Nicodemus knew that all his good works, his prestige and honor and his wealth and his position in the Jewish nation weren't enough to make him right with God to get him into heaven and to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So again, this is the regeneration versus reformation. It's a change of heart. God gives us a new heart with new desires. That's what happens when you're born of the Spirit. Now there's three must statements, and I'm going to look at those next week, so we'll come back to that. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I believe Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus, you don't understand everything about the wind, but you see its effects. This is how it is with the birth of the Spirit. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know that he didn't have to understand everything about the new birth before he experienced it. And what did Jesus say? Who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those who have faith like a child. And our intellect can get in the way. Too much knowledge can get in the way. We just need to bring it down to the basics. That's what the gospel is. It's it's really quite basic. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? This is like, you know, Salvation 101, of course, you know. This is New Covenant. Come on, Nicodemus. (laughs) If anyone should know these things, it's you. You're the teacher of Israel. It's all laid out in the Old Testament for you. You've read the passages, but he's misapplied them. He believes that they've been fulfilled in regard to the new birth of the nation when they were came back from Babylon. And the, the, this religious movement led by the Pharisees, well, that's the move of the Spirit. Well, they could have interpreted that way, but it wasn't. Verse 11, Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know. Now who's we? I believe it's the Trinity. I believe it's Father and Son, at least. What happened when he was baptized? Father said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Father has given his testimony. Jesus has given his testimony that he's heavenly. And Nicodemus, Jesus must say into his heart and say, well, you're not really believing this. How, if you don't believe that I came from heaven, if you don't believe my witness, how can I tell you about heavenly things? Uh, Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And I believe that verse is talking about the omnipresence of Jesus as as a spirit, remember God is spirit, as in a body he's down on planet earth in Jerusalem, but his spirit is everywhere. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this is a reference, the serpent, to Numbers chapter 21. And that's what's on the screen now. So I'll read that together. This is, um, it's good to read this because you, you get the background to um, what Jesus is talking about. So Numbers 21, 4-9. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, 
and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who was bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So serpents are often used as pictures of evil in the Bible. You can go back to Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 5, and Revelation 12, 9, that's where Satan is described as a serpent or comes as a serpent. So a bronze serpent does speak of sin, but more importantly, it speaks of sin as being judged. So sin has been judged. It's a bronze serpent. Bronze it speaks of judgment. So the altar outside of the temple was made of bronze. It's where the animals were killed and burnt. It speaks of the cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross, and our sin was judged in him. So a, a bronze serpent is a picture of sin judged and dealt with. And that's why the people in this story could then look, just look at the serpent, and it's a picture of that their sin had been judged, they could be forgiven. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, I am the serpent, the bronze serpent. I have become sin or taken on your sin. If Moses put the serpent horizontally on this vertical pole, like, you know, a cross and wrapped it around, it would actually make a cross. But what we see today is in many traditions is the serpent being wrapped around the pole. And this is where this figure of, you know, the serpent around the pole becomes a, a figure of healing and medicine. So that's what this is where it comes from. Now, the really important thing here is that the people were saved by not doing anything but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. And this is an act of faith. They had to trust that something as seemingly foolish as looking at such a thing as this bronze serpent would be sufficient to save them. I mean, if you were in that, that those people's shoes, would you be thinking, if I look at this, I'm going to be healed? You know, it doesn't make sense. So, And the same is true for people today. This is what people think. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now Isaiah 45.22 Look to me, look to me, and be saved, or you enter the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Now we might be willing to do a hundred things to earn our salvation, but God only wants us to trust in him, to look to him. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, became like the brass snake of Numbers 21 when he was lifted up on the cross to absorb the judgment that should have been ours. And here he's saying to Nicodemus, look to me and you will be born again. And that's how simple it is. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So eternal life is not just never-ending life because everybody has never-ending life. You can have never-ending life in the second death. You're still alive, but you're just suffering. Eternal life or everlasting life has the idea of a 
improve quality of life. It's God's way of life. And it's a joyful life which we enjoy with the Lord for eternity. Now, verse 16. I love this verse. We'll probably stop here. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it's 25 words long, and it contains basically the whole gospel. So it contains his heart, God's the Father's heart, he loved the world, the, the Father's plan, he gave his only begotten Son, and the Father's will, or God's will, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it tells you everything you need to know about God. As If you have faith as a child, you can respond to that. Now, you know in the John 3.16 what the middle word is out of those 25 words? Son. So it's just a coincidence. But those who experience God's presence most powerfully are those who have made the Son the center of their lives. Jesus is the center of the greatest verse in all scripture, arguably. He must be the center in our hearts and lives if we are to have meaning, purpose, and impact. And you can look at Ephesians 1.10 where God has make everything or put everything in Jesus. This means that any person, pursuit, or passion in my life that cannot be centered on Jesus Christ has no place in my life. As we talked about in chapter 2, it must be judged or whipped or removed. So I saw this table. I'm going to put it up for you. It's, it was titled The Seven Wonders of John 3.16. <clears throat> so God is the highest authority, the almighty authority. So love the world is the mightiest motive, is love. That he gave his only begotten son, that's the greatest gift. That's who, That whoever is the widest welcome. Believes in him is the easiest escape. Should not perish is the divine deliverance. And but of everlasting life is the priceless possession. So I just thought that was pretty good. Verse 17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world through him might be saved. So Jesus didn't come down to come down on people, but to reach out to people. God sent his son into the world not to point his finger at the world, but to embrace the world and draw it to himself. Now, here's a little story for you to help you understand the difference between Christianity and the other religions. An old legend tells of a traveller attempting to circle the globe who found himself trapped in quicksand. As he slowly sank, Confucius came and said, Confucius say, it is evident man should avoid such situations, and he went on his way. Muhammad came by and said, Alas, it is the will of Allah, and he went on his way. Buddha came by and said, Let this man's dilemma be be an illustration for many, and he went on his way. Krishna came by and said, Better luck next time, and went on his way. (laughs) Jesus Christ came by, reached out to the man and pulled him out. The unique thing about Christianity and our Lord is that all the other religions tell us what we must do to reach up to heaven, or to reach heaven. Christianity and Jesus alone reaches down from heaven and pulls us out of the quicksand of sin. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world to give us some cute spiritual sayings or to make us feel bad because of our spiritual inadequacy. No, the purpose of God in sending his son is only one that is to save us. Now I just want to finish with this. 
If God doesn't condemn us, why are unbelievers condemned? Jesus came to bring salvation, didn't he? So why are people condemned? He says that God didn't come to condemn the world, but it still says that they're condemned. That's verse 17. i just read it again. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, Jesus came to bring salvation, but those who reject that salvation condemn themselves. People bear their own responsibility for rejecting God's offer of salvation. And the reason that people reject Christ is given in the next verses. And we'll do that next week. But first, I just want to finish with some verses that link John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 with other passages of Scripture. So think about this way. God himself provided our way of escape. So the first verse is uh, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Isaiah 53.5-6 But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So next week we'll continue um, in chapter 3, and we'll also talk about repentance, and uh, and how that fits into the gospel as well, what is repentance, and uh, John's testimony of Jesus and, and in the rest of chapter 3. Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to remember Lord, that you came not to condemn us, but to save us. And all we need to do is just respond and receive that gift. Lord, it's by faith we have to trust. It's not just knowing, it's believing. It's putting our trust in you. And I pray that you'll help us to just um, meditate on John 3.16 and just remember the truth of that verse and how powerful it is. Help us to respond to you, Lord, even as Christians, by loving you, with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, Lord. And I pray that, as someone said, that since you've given us so much and done so much for us, there'd be nothing that we wouldn't do for you. Nothing that we wouldn't give up for you. Nothing that's too expensive. Nothing that we wouldn't count the cost for. Help us to be completely surrendered to you, Lord. And I just pray that you use us mightily, Father. Help us to be witnesses for you, ambassadors for you, that we wouldn't turn people away, but we draw people to you as people see your love in us and amongst us too. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.